The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. You can open your Bibles and find the book of Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20. Revelation 1, 9 through 20. We're in a journey, the beginning part of a journey through the book of Revelation and we come to the latter half of chapter 1 this morning. What do you think of when you think about Jesus? When you think about Jesus, what are, what are some of the things that come to your mind? You know, for some, when they think about Jesus, they still think primarily of the baby in a manger. <laughs> Sweet and gentle and, and, and innocent. Others, when they think about Jesus, they think of Jesus as kind of a hippie, long hair, out in nature, pushing it back against the system of the day, had a, a small following of disciples that he simply taught to love their neighbors. Others think of Jesus primarily as a, uh, a spiritual principle, uh, a set of ideas or ideals that, that guide them and you know, how they make decisions and, and live their lives. While others think of him primarily as a historical figure only, an important person who lived 2,000 years ago, but who has long since died and remains dead even to this day. What do you think about when you think about Jesus? Guys, this is a really important question because what we think about Jesus will shape how we respond whenever we hear from Jesus. In our text this morning, the Apostle John is given a vision of the resurrected Christ in glory. This vision is intended to prepare the church to hear from Jesus. So that when we hear from him, we would respond with obedience and faith. Okay, the goal of this vision is not to tell us what Jesus looks like. The goal of this vision is to tell us what Jesus is like. The goal is to reveal unto us his identity and his relationship with the church verses 9 through 11 prepare us for the vision of the exalted christ i want you to look with me in verse 9 and it says i john your brother and partner in the affliction kingdom and endurance that are in jesus was on the island called patmos because of the word of god and the testimony of jesus now we know that this very likely was the apostle john that's a capital a apostle not only was he an apostle of the church, he was a close friend of Jesus himself. He uh, had a close personal relationship with Jesus. Yet, you would never know any of those things by reading how he introduces himself here in Revelation. He doesn't appeal to his apostleship or his close connection with Christ. He simply introduces himself as their brother. <laughs> this is your brother, John, and partner in the kingdom. It's a reminder that while we all have different titles and positions in this life, at the end of the day, most foundationally, we are, in Christ, brothers and, and sisters. 
We are partners in the kingdom of Christ. And he says specifically that he's partnering with them in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. Now, I want to point out, grammatically, there's only one definite article, which is the word the. There's only one the before the three words, affliction, kingdom, and endurance. The syntactical implication of that is that those three words, those three ideas, affliction, kingdom, and endurance, are a part of the same package. They go together. You can't have one without the other. The one article controls all three ideas, bringing them together as a whole. This is significant because you might assume that when you share in the kingdom of Jesus, that it might give you an exemption from affliction and hardship in this life. I mean, the royal family in England is probably not having to live through a lot of the hardships of those outside the royal family, the common class in England. I mean, typically, a share in an earthly kingdom provides certain earthly amenities like comfort and protection. But evidently, this is not the case with the kingdom of Christ. In fact, this kingdom can only be entered through affliction and tribulation. Okay, sharing in the kingdom of Jesus and sharing in affliction are a package deal. We come into the kingdom through the same trajectory that Jesus took his seat, and that is a trajectory that went through Calvary. And the specific affliction that John is facing here, it tells us, is that of a prisoner's exile. He says he's on Patmos. Now, Patmos was a small rocky island. We, we, we're pretty sure that it was used during this time as somewhat of an Alcatraz for the Roman Empire where they would send people whom they consider to be a threat to the civil order of Rome. And, and John says, I was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So evidently, he was serving as a faithful gospel witness. The Roman authorities considered that a threat, and so they exiled them away from home. You're going to live on this small, rocky island in exile. So John is literally living in the midst of affliction as he sees this vision, okay? Verse 10. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, so this is John's commissioning, his prophetic commissioning to write down what he saw, the words of this prophecy. It says it happened on a Sunday, referred to here as the Lord's Day, first day of the week, because this was the day in which Jesus rose from the dead. He hears this powerful voice behind him with the volume of a trumpet, and the voice tells him to write down what he sees. Now, this same commissioning is repeated at the end of the vision in verse 19. So drop down to verse 19. He says again, Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. Verse 19 uh, likely provides a rough outline for the book of Revelation. The things that you have seen probably refers to chapter 1 and this vision that he's seen with the exalted Christ. 
uh, the things that are or that what is would be chapters 2 and 3. He's addressing the situation in the, in the seven churches. And the things that, come to, that will take place after that will be chapters 4 and following. Now I want you to go back up to verse 10. Verse 10 begins with that important phrase, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, in the Spirit simply means that John is receiving a Holy Spirit-produced vision. And this is an important phrase in the book of Revelation because this phrase, I was in the Spirit, introduces new major segments of the book. Okay, so we're going to see this phrase come up again at the beginning of the next major segment of the book, chapter 4, where John will again say, I was in the Spirit. Now, that's significant Because the vision of the exalted Christ that we're about to look at here in chapter 1 begins a a segment of the book that includes the seven letters to the seven churches. In fact, we're going to see that each of those letters refer back to this vision. This vision introduces the letters. In these letters, Jesus speaks to his church. And he speaks both words of affirmation as well as words of rebuke. Guys, this helps us to to understand the purpose of this vision of the exalted Christ. Okay, In this vision, Jesus is revealing both his identity and his relationship to the church because he is about to speak into the lives of these Christians, of these churches, which we saw last Sunday simply represent the capital C church itself. He's about to speak into the lives of his people. And he wants to prepare the church, including us, to hear these words of both rebuke and affirmation. And so he he gives the church, he gives us this vision that unveils his identity, unveils his relationship to us, so that we're ready to respond to him appropriately. Okay, that's what he's doing here. And so as we walk through this vision together, We're going to see three different aspects of Jesus' identity and relationship to his people that that emerge from this vision. Okay, Three different aspects of his identity and relationship to his church. The first aspect that we see is this. Number one, Jesus is the present priest who enables his church to shine in the world. He's the present priest who enables his church to shine in the world. This is verses 12 and 13. Look at them. John says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. Okay, a little background here. God commanded Moses, when he constructed the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, to put in the tabernacle, to put in the holy place, seven lamps. These lamps contained oil such that when they were lit, they produced a fire. They held a fire. And we know that that fire 
in the tabernacle was representing the very presence and glory of God. Fire regularly represents the presence of God throughout the scriptures. This fire in the tabernacle was was burning, shining light among the people of God and in the world of God. And the lamps held the fire. We also know that it was one of the assignments of the Levitical priests to tend to the lamps. This was a part of their job. They would make sure the lamps had plenty of oil so that the fire would never go out. Okay? So, John gets this vision, and the first thing that he sees are seven lampstands, like those that would have been in the holy place, and he sees, it says, one like the Son of Man among them. A son of man is Jesus' favorite description of himself. He used that to describe himself more than any other descriptor in the Gospels. This was Jesus standing there. Now Jesus here is presented with both the position and the appearance of a priest. This is projecting, describing Jesus as a priest. He has the position of a priest because it says that he's standing among the lampstands. That's where the priest stood, the high priest, tending to the lamps, making sure the, the lamps did not go out. He's also dressed like a priest. He has the appearance of a priest. The, the priest wore, and we see this in the law, a long robe with a sash. This is the high priest, a sash across his chest. Now, down in verse 20, it interprets the vision of the lampstands for us. I love it when the Revelation does this. I wish it did it more, frankly. Like, let me tell you what all this means, okay? And it tells us in verse 20 that the lampstands are intended to represent the seven churches, which we know themselves are intended to represent the the, the church, the body of Christ, okay? So there are a couple of implications of this first, the first part of this vision. First is it, it, it reveals to us our purpose as the people of Christ. Our purpose as the church. Okay, Just as the lamps held fire that shined the light of God's presence and glory in a dark world. So does the church hold the fire of God and the person of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God that dwells within us. And our purpose as the church, as lampstands, our purpose is to shine the light of God's presence in this world by manifesting the fruit of of the Spirit of God and the power of the Spirit of God and the ministries of the Spirit of God. Now, we're not the fire, we're the lampstands. We hold the fire. We display the fire. We are to be a people on fire. John sees a vision of lampstands on fire and he says, that's the church. Burning and shining, meaning that the presence of God ought to be noticeable in our lives. 
is the presence of God noticeable in your life? Guys, this is not a given. When we grieve the Spirit and quench the Spirit, our simple attitudes or, or actions, or we're not living in the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, the fire of God's presence grows dim and cold in our lives. Like one of those candles that the wick has gotten so little, the wax has grown up over it, that you, there's a flame there, but you can barely see it. It's hardly noticeable in the room. The, the people of Christ are supposed to bring light into the world and warmth into the world because we have the fire of, of God's presence in us. And yet too often, the church of Jesus Christ isn't even noticed in the world, it's not seen in the world, it's giving off no warmth in the world because of sin within the church and infighting and backfighting and gossip and pride and, and, and immorality. Our purpose is to shine. And did you also notice the position of Jesus with the church? It says he's walking among the lampstands. You see, Jesus is the high priest who tends to the lamps and maintains the lampstands. Okay, it's Jesus who will make sure that the fire in your life and in our church will never go completely out. It's Jesus who wants to put greater measures of oil in us so that the fire of God will burn brighter in our lives and in our church. Okay, this is, this is actually what he's doing in the seven letters. He's acting as the high priest. He's maintaining the lampstands. He's, he's tending to them by rebuking their sin, right? He calls them out. He says, you've tolerated this doctrine. You've tolerated this person. You've tolerated this sin. You've grown lukewarm. You've forgotten your first love. He's encur he encourages them to, to, I've seen your good works. Continue to endure. I know where you're at. Continue to, to endure the persecution. He's, he's tending to the lampstands. He's serving as the high priest. And guys, this same high priest continues to walk among his churches today. It's Jesus who maintains the church today. Speaking into the life of the church, rebuking, admonishing, encouraging his people so that we would burn the fire of God. So my question for you is, are you, are you listening to the high priest? Like can you, if he were to say something to you, if he were to say something to us, would we hear him? Are you hearing his words of rebuke? Are you hearing his words of admonition? Are you hearing his words of encouragement? Are you stilling your heart? Are we, as a church, stilling our hearts long enough? In the presence of the, of the high priest to hear what he wants to say to his church today so that we as the lampstands of God might burn hotter and brighter the presence and glory of God in this world. Or would you say, you know what, my fire, my, the fire of my life manifest presence of God in my life it's grown cold and dim 
And if that's where you're at, the solution is pretty clear according to this vision. You've got to draw near the high priest. He's the one that tends to the lampstands. You've got to get close to Jesus. Getting in his presence and listening for his voice. Jesus is the present priest who enables us to shine in this world. The vision continues. We see another aspect of Jesus' identity and relationship to his church. Not only is he the present priest, but number two, Jesus is the righteous judge who corrects his church in their sin. Verse 14. It says, the hair of his head was white as wool and white as snow and his eyes like a, a fiery flame. His, his feet like, were like fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace. And his voice like the cas- a sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Okay, the danger in these three verses is over-interpretation, where we, uh, we separate and dissect each individual dis- descriptor. Understand, all of these d- descriptors are intended to function like threads of a tapestry that are, that are coming together in order to present a unified picture of Jesus, okay? And so what is the unified picture of Christ that these descriptors are, are intending to portray? I'll tell you, that picture is that of a righteous judge. You say, well, how do you, how do you know that's the picture? Well, most of these descriptors are coming straight from Daniel chapter 7 and 10. And, and if you look at these descriptors, these images in the original context, and Daniel, particularly in chapter 7, they're, they're describing the white hair and the fiery eyes. They're describing the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 specifically was functioning as the judge. It was describing him as the judge of the world, of the nations, and of his people. And so now we see that same imagery here being used to describe Jesus. It's presenting Jesus as the Ancient of Days, as the righteous judge of the world okay it helps us to understand the the specific description so white hair this this idea conveys this idea of purity right he is a pure and righteous judge similar with the eyes of fire fire purifies jesus sees everything as the righteous judge he sees everything in your life he sees everything in his church He sees what nobody else can see with those eyes of fire, a sight that is intended to purify what he sees. Same is true of the feet that's that's burning hot like bronze that's been in fire, conveying this idea of of purity and and strength. His voice sounds like Niagara, right? Powerful and and authoritative. And then he's got got the double-edged sword of judgment coming out from his mouth. We know that's a sort of judgment because it's going to come back up again in Revelation chapter 19 when he's using this sword to judge the nations. This is the sword that's coming out of his mouth. And it says his face was shining like sun, which is a description that simply sums up the radiance of his glory. He is a glorious, powerful, pure, and righteous judge. 
And it says that this judge is holding seven stars in his right hand. Now back down in verse 20, it tells us what these seven stars represent. It says that these seven stars represent the seven angels of the, the seven churches. Okay. Now that only helps a little bit because nobody can seem to figure out what these angels of the seven churches refer to. Two primary kind of interpretive options. One is that these seven angels of the seven churches refer to um, the pastor or, or, or at least the lead pastor of the, of the church. In favor of that option is that the word angelos is sometimes translated as messenger and can refer not to a heavenly being but to a human messenger like a pastor being the messenger of, of God within the church. Also, when you get to the seven letters, the letters are not addressed to the church. They're addressed to the angel of the church which makes more sense if the angel is an actual leader, pastor of the church. The other interpretive option is that these actually refer to literal angels that somehow represent the church in the heavenly places or perhaps they're like a, think of like a guardian angel particular angel or angels that are assigned to specific congregations to, to to minister and protect so is it is it you know is it a pastor are they are they literal angels i've studied this all week all right get your notes ready <laughs> which is right i really don't know i really don't know <laughs> I, 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 I went back and forth on this all week long, and I still, I'm just, I'm not sure exactly. Um, is it pastor, or is it angel, or something else? I will say this, though. At the end of the day, I won't say it doesn't matter, but the, the conclusion is the same. Because whether it's human pastor or a heavenly being, the angel represents the whole church. When he's writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus, he He's writing to the church in Ephesus. The angel is representing the congregation, okay? So the significance of the vision is that he's holding these stars, these angels, where? His right hand. That's the hand of authority. Jesus is being de depicted here as the one who has authority over his church. He is the head of this body. He, he, he is the head of the spiritual family. He is the head of the church. And as such, he has the authority to act as the righteous judge of the church. Now, guys, this is really important. Because oftentimes when we think of Jesus as a judge, we think of him as primarily judging who? those people right the unbelieving world now he judges the world we'll, we'll get there that's not what's being highlighted here in chapter one remember this is vision is intended to introduce the seven letters to the seven churches each one of those letters except for two speaks words of judgment words of rebuke to the church This vision is presenting Jesus as the judge of his church. And as a righteous judge, he will correct us in our sin. Okay? We have to be careful that we don't forget this aspect of Jesus' character. 
Yes, Jesus is our friend. John 15, same apostle, right? Yes. Yes, Jesus is, is slow to anger. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's meek. Yes and amen. And also, yes, Jesus is a righteous judge who will not tolerate sin within his people. And if you're, if you're, if you're struggling with, with, with that understanding of this, I, I encourage you to read the letter to the church of Pergamum. <laughs> because in that letter, he specifically says that if they do not repent and turn as a church, if they do not repent and turn, he's coming at them, the church, with the same sword that's coming out of his mouth. And guys, I want to tell you, this guy, this man before whom John falls like a dead man is not someone you want coming at you with a sword. But he will if he needs to. Because he is jealous for the hearts of his people. He wants something better for you. He wants as the great high priest to purify you. To lead you in the way of eternal life. Yes, we know that there is now no condemnation, eternal condemnation for those who are in Christ. But guys, if there is no place in our theology for a Jesus who will not tolerate sin and who will not correct the sins of his people, then guys, we got to change our theology and bring it under the authority of the word of God. That's exactly how Jesus is being displayed here. The implication is, guys, we cannot become cavalier towards sin in our lives. You can't, you can't look at this vision and, and conclude that Jesus is cavalier towards sin. His fiery eyes see it. His thundering voice will be heard. And his double-edged sword is ready if it's needed. Jesus is a present priest and he's also the righteous judge who corrects his church and their sin. I want, I want to show you one other aspect of Jesus' identity and relationship to his church here. This is verses 17 and 18. It's this, number three. Jesus is also the life-giving God who comforts his church in their affliction. Jesus is the life-giving God who comforts his church in their affliction. Look at verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You would too, by the way. Uh, he laid his right hand on me and said, don't, I love these words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And now I hold the keys of death and Hades. So, so, so John sees the one that he used to fish with and laugh with and commune with and eat with. He sees him and he falls like a dead man. Like he doesn't even know if he's going to survive this encounter. But then Jesus gets him up and he tells him, 
don't be afraid. And why should you not be afraid? Because I, he says, I am the first and the last. Guys, that's how God was described in verse 8. This this is a very clear Jesus saying, I am God. The first and the last. It said of the Lord God in verse 8. And he says, I am the living one. He died and he rose again, conquering death. And now he holds the keys of death and Hades. Hades is simply a reference here, not of hell, but as the abode of the dead. Jesus holds the keys, which means that Jesus has the authority, listen, to call us home through physical death when the time is right. And he has the authority to raise us back up from the dead. In other words, the door of death opens and shuts at Jesus' command. Guys, do you see how that's incredible comfort to those like John who is on an island somewhere out in the middle of the sea? He doesn't know how much longer he's going to live. How much of a comfort that is to these, these Christians in these seven churches that are under a hostile Roman empire and they have no idea how much longer they have to live. And, 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 it's, and it's incredible comfort to, to, many, to many of you here who are even this day going through affliction and perhaps even feeling the reality of death. It's it's such a powerful image because John, he falls like a dead man, right? Before this glorious and powerful, exalted Jesus who's shining like the sun. He's got the sword coming out of his mouth and his voice sounds like a waterfall. He falls like a a dead man, not sure if he was going to get up alive. And then, as he's lying there on his face, he feels that familiar touch of compassion on his shoulder. And he hears these words, John, don't be afraid. Okay, And, And he says those same words to his people today. Don't be afraid when you face affliction. Don't, don't, don't be afraid when you face the reality of death. Okay, don't be afraid when I call you out of your comfort zone. Don't be afraid when I call you into a country where it's illegal to be a Christian. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when the world rejects you. Don't Be afraid because of who I am. I am the life-giving God, and I will graciously give life to those whose faith endures to the end. I look at this vision and this encounter here, and I can't can't help but think of an interaction from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Uh, If you're not not familiar with, with the story, Jesus is depicted in the story as Aslan. He's the powerful lion. And there's this particular interchange between Susan, who's one of the children, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Okay? And Susan is getting ready to meet Aslan. And here, don't put it up yet. Take that off. Take that off. I'll set it up. Thank you, my brother. <laughs> 
Susan's getting ready to meet Aslan, and she's a little nervous because uh, she's never met him, and he's this big, powerful king, and uh, she doesn't even know that he's a lion. She thinks, she thinks he's, he's just a human man. And so it, it provokes this interchange between Susan and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Now you can throw it up there. Listen to this interchange. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Uh, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. My brothers and sisters, what, what, I, want, what I want you to see from this vision of the exalted Christ that this king, Jesus, he isn't safe, harmless, or tame. He's powerful, he's righteous, he is the warrior, king, and judge of the world. He isn't safe, but he is good. He's good, he's a, he's a good king. And if you come to him with a childlike faith and repentance, he will not leave you lying like a dead man in the dust, but he will pick you up and he will say, don't be afraid. The point of this passage is that the exalted Christ in glory summons forth obedience from his church. The exalted Christ in glory summons forth obedience from his church. This vision of the exalted Christ prepares the church for the seven letters that include both words of affirmation and rebuke. Written to Christians who were facing intense affliction they, they needed to see the exalted Christ. They needed to see his identity and his relationship to the church because it's the exalted Christ in glory that summons forth obedience from his church. Now, guys, let me tell you, that obedience includes fulfilling our purpose as lampstands that manifest the presence of God, shine the light of God in this world. And so we need to see him as the present priest. 
That obedience also includes the pursuit of righteousness, walking in purity and in repentance. And so we have to see him as the righteous judge who will correct us in our sin. And that obedience includes faithfully enduring affliction without giving up hope. And so we have to see him as the life-giving God. The exalted Christ in glory summons forth obedience from his church. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know, which simply means that you've never surrendered your life to this king. You're not following him as the king of your life. I want you to know that you can be forgiven of your sins and you can receive new life this morning by trusting what this king has done for you. He died in your place and trusting that there's nothing you can do to supplement that death through morality or good life. You have to receive it as a free gift and trusting him such that you entrust your life to him, turning from a life where you're king and embracing his kingship over you. And you can have new life in Christ today. If you are a Christian my question for you this morning is, how is Jesus summoning you to obedience today? What is he calling you to give up? What is he calling you to take up? Where is he leading you? What affliction is he leading you through calling you to endure faithfully? Has your spiritual life lost fire? Has it lost purity? Has it lost hope? If so, then turn to Jesus. Because he is the present priest, the righteous judge, and the life-giving God.